This episode is brought to you by Government Big Box. Government Big Box is the world's largest collection of government styles, from turnkey constitutions for your new lodge to rare and collectible regimes for your remote mountain community. They stock all the usual stuff. Matrilineal governments, anarchist collectives, crushing martial law lockdowns, the everyday brands you come to love and trust. But they also stock harder-to-find solutions, like Demarchy, where your all-powerful temporary representatives are chosen by random selection, and the incomprehensible liquid democracy of the German Pirate Party. Hello! I'm looking for a copy of Geniocracy by race car driver and UFO cult leader Rael. The selective democracy where only those with an IQ over 110 can vote for candidates of an IQ of over 150 above. Right here, sir. And we also have the secret memoir of his travels on the planet Elohim where he got his political science degree. And why settle for options that only tell other people what to do? Right now, our listeners can choose a customized persecutor for their own internal compulsive personality complex. Just use the promo code REREAD, one word, when ordering. And thank you, Government Big Box, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. A lot of love. A lot of love for the recent Don Mates bonus episode. Right, Craig? Yeah, the only thing that made me upset was the person who suggested that we needed to do my videos more often. <laughs> because I ain't editing that much for every episode. No. Just no, saying. No. <laughs> well, you know, I'd like to do some more uh, artists and such. But, oh, yeah. And, oh, it would be fun. Would and be cool. I guess it would make sense, but... Like I told someone uh, who had, who had suggested, oh, I have another idea for an artist, and I thought, okay, look, we can we can do them. I want to do them, but we have to space them out because, you know, that's a lot of work for you, Craig. And as I told one listener, I, I don't want to kill the Craig that lays the golden egg. So, <laughs> well, it be it would be cool. Like I'd love to, if we could do like five minutes with people who do a lot of the international covers, and just be like, what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> Did you read the book? Did somebody tell you what the book was about? <laughs> but some of them be really cool because some of them come up with some really strange, like which one? There's one that has the Valkyrie on the cover of Citadel, the Valkyrie thing, whatever it is, or it has something like that. Is that the one that has kind of the bizarro um, sci-fi cover yeah. the UK Arrow edition? So is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I like those. I don't know that they're appropriate, but I just think they look cool. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, they're they're quite different. But no, that was a lot of fun. And thanks again to Don Mates for letting us talk and mm -hmm. just use all of his images and for sending over the drafts. That was really cool. And especially too, that that we got to see the updated Citadel. That was really yeah. Fun. The just seeing those images was just really great. And as people, a lot of people said, we we got no corrections on that episode. You'd be surprised to <laughs> learn. I, I mean, people talk about how much they love it, but this is only moderately surprising, I guess. 
so much genuine gratitude that that episode exists. I, I mean, I certainly feel the same way. And, and they all loved your editing, Craig. They all liked the ability to see the covers as well. Yeah, it's wonderful. Love that episode. Yeah, so I'll share share the tip. If you ever have to edit something, instead of just putting a still image on there, just zoom in, zoom out, pan <laughs> left or pan right, and all of a sudden you two can make a school film from the 90s. <laughs> Oddly enough, more people will watch that than just a still picture. Yeah. It just doesn't feel like a PowerPoint anymore. So uh, let's see, what else has happened since we last got together, Craig? Oh, well, the Alton's Libraries published a new review of That's Interlibrary right. Loan. I'm really grateful That's for right. that. Such synchronicity that you and I both were asked to write reviews of Wolf's last two books. Who would have guessed? <laughs> Thank you, Nigel, very much to, mm-hmm. and for Jonathan. the chance to do that. And Jonathan, yeah. yes, yes. Now, over the last month, they published, yeah, right, yours, your review of Interlibrary Loan and my review of uh, A Borrowed Man, both of them intentionally spoilery. I'll I'll credit your review for convincing me that these novels are not so much a novel and its sequel, but as people call it, a diptych, like The Book of the Long Sun and The Book of the Short Sun, or Empire Strikes Back and The Return of the Jedi. It seems right. And so much of, I mean, A Borrowed Man can stand by itself. Interlibrary Loan, I feel like you really... So much of that is strange enough on its own, but it gets even stranger when yeah, you yeah. read Borrowed Man. So, yeah, if you want to fully yeah. understand either, you got to be familiar with them both. That's what I think. Yep. Yep. I will say that having read this review, if anyone wants to take on this diptych, it wouldn't hurt to read The Doctor of Death Island, but I doubt it will explain everything for you. But even more than A Borrowed Man, Interlibrary Loan makes me want to see more of that world. Yeah, and you brought that up after I had gotten most of the draft done, so I wasn't <laughs> just going to go back and change it. But no, there is definitely a lot there, both in terms of the plot, but also, I mean, thematically, of course, but but also the plot. And I mm-hmm. think he's yeah. definitely got that in mind or was thinking along certain, certain grooves that that right. story had carved. Yeah, definitely. I wouldn't say we really explained these books so much as surveyed all the canyons from which no one has returned and the dragon-infested woods. Oh, yeah. There's still plenty of stuff. Just, I mean, so much stuff about interlibrary loan that I just don't get. Um, mm-hmm. And partly because, as, as I said there, I, I don't think it was really finished. Um, I know officially, the official word is that Tor said that he handed in a completed manuscript as if it was completed. But yeah, I really don't. But well, Nigel said that his eyesight was failing. He could only write a short time, uh, yeah. a, a short amount of time every day. And, you know, he, I think he just felt like, oh, I've got to get it done, get it done, get it done, get to the end, get to the end. Yeah. Get to the end. And I know some people will react and say, you know, that they shouldn't have published it if it really wasn't in a good format. And I, I get that at the same time, kudos to them for actually going with something kind of out of respect for the guy. Mm-hmm you know, knowing it's going to be his last book and knowing, you know, even especially if he turned it in saying, you know, this is really all I can do. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of respect. Yeah. And I'm going to tell the truth. I know the narrative is confusing, but just the prose is the best writing in a novel that he's done in years. It's better than a, a borrowed man. Borrowed man, I enjoyed a borrowed man. I like a borrowed man a lot. I'm not saying that I don't like a borrowed man. I'm not disparaging any of the novels, but this, it really shined. It really felt 
good. There's a lot there. Honestly, I enjoy both of them a lot more than I did certain other <laughs> yeah. wolf. Yeah, books, no. I have to admit. Yeah, these you know these books they just they still nag at me. They keep calling me back to make a go at them. So if anybody takes anything that we've said in these reviews along with them on rereads of the books, I would really like to hear what you've come up with. And there's a lot to disagree with them in them. Um, Nigel, who edited mine, was compelled to include significant annotations and counter arguments. And honestly, <laughs> I can't think of anything more gratifying as a reviewer. The Inner Library Loan has a counter argument from Michael Andre Driussi in the comments. Mm -hmm. yep. So yeah, check those out. I'll put those yep. in the show notes as always. And you should still check out Elton's library in the near future because yeah, it's alive. It's <laughs> yes, yeah, growing still. Yeah, right. All right, chapter thirty-two, the play that we did with Mark Aramini's uh, assistance. I was struggling to recall the mechanical chess-playing automaton of the 19th century. And Corcut Goulet of Facebook graciously reminded us that it was called the Turk. And as it happens, I had been recently reminded of that in Natural Course shortly before his comment, because we reread Ambrose Bierce's story, Moxon's Master, and it came up in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And that initiated a conversation on Facebook with Brian Lieb. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Brian. If not, let me know, and I'll use the magic of editing to correct it. He strongly agreed with you and Mark and disagreed with me that Talos was indeed sentient. And on Reddit, Goonhands took that position as well, saying, Dr. Talos definitely has a soul. I'm biased because he's probably my favorite character in the book. So. <laughs> anyway, Brian's comment, uh, led to an interesting discussion for me about the Turing test and other instances of artificial life in Wolf's stories and whether they're sentient. As I said in the episode, I do think Jonas and Sidero of Earth the New Sun are sentient. And as I told Brian, I think that because Jonas loves and because Sidero notes offenses to his dignity, I think they do have a soul that they are sentient. And I think the Kims in the Book of the Long Sun are sentient, and so are the Inhumi. And I think, as Wolf has set it up, the Kims, the Inhumi, the gods of the world, all have human souls that descend from the Incrate originally. And I think E.A. Smith has a soul. Mr. Milliam seems to apparently have a soul, and it ultimately surprised him <laughs> that he would. <laughs> and the Abos in the Fifth had a Cerberus? Uh, no, I'm not sure. Anyway, the conversation was great. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Brian. If I add anything, we're just going to go deep into a philosophical hole. So yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll save that for. <laughs> well, since when don't we like that? No, the only thing I was thinking is that in Long Sun and Short Sun, we actually do get scenes where, I mean, it's not first person narration, but but the narrator does describe things from the Kim's perspective, doesn't mm -hmm. he? That's true. That is true. Yeah, because it's not it's not all silk all the time. Right. right. He's not our only point of view character. Like we still get, yeah, it's not first person narration from them, but he talks about feelings and memories of mm -hmm. Marble and whatnot. Yeah. 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 Well, I, one day, you know, in about 10 years when we get to that, uh, I have all kinds of explanations for why these Kims have souls, but we'll save that. We, I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> On Reddit, Goonhands made an interesting observation that we missed, that 
just like the Daisy in Dorcas's hair and Severian's black outfit, that they reference Shakespeare's Hamlet with Dorcas as Ophelia. Here we have a play as well. But, Greg, who is Claudius? Who should be out watching the play? In the future, here I am, even spoiling these episodes. But in an upcoming chapter, it's going to be evident that Hathor was in the crowds. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's him. And since in Hamlet, Claudius essentially watches himself be portrayed, well, you know, there's a lot of potential there. Maybe so. It brings up a slightly different question, too. Who is Talos writing this for? Just himself? Is he doing it to give Severian some hints? Is he just showing off his prophetic whatever? You know, that's that's a question that I don't necessarily have a good answer to right now. I'm not sure. I think it has something to do with Severian, but I don't know what the value is. No. I don't know. I, I mean, I could say, but I could, I, but most of my postulations would only annoy people. So I'm going to let that go. <laughs> Goonhans also postulated that contrary to what we've said, Baldanders does care about humanity in his way. That is, quote, he intended to rule over humanity that fits his image, a la Typhon, perhaps. In other words, Baldanders is a true believer in the efficacy of scientific thought and objectivism to elevate humankind, which puts him in direct opposition of the ethics, morals, and faith that ostensibly is represented by the design of the Herodules. Maybe. Additionally, on Reddit, Lord of Atlantis chimed in with some interesting Catholic perspectives on symbols, working of themselves or not at all, and on the Donatist controversy and keying off our conversation about origins and Severian's three levels of meaning and Aquinas's four levels. He offered an excerpt from a letter that Dante wrote about his divine comedy, which applied this model to his own work. Additionally, he argues that Tolkien, Dante, and Wolf form, quote, a sort of Catholic trilogy of pseudo-historic epics. Tolkien, The Distant Past, Dante, Writing of the Afterlife, records the distant present, and Wolf translates a manuscript of the distant future. Hmm, I like that one. Yeah. On our discussion in Chapter 19 episode about how Agia seems to be improbably knowledgeable about religion and history in the Commonwealth, and also regarding the jungles of the North. Uh, Let's not forget that. Jack Redelf opined that this isn't surprising at all. He said, suffice it to say, I believe that Agia is a philosopher because everyone in the Commonwealth is a philosopher, and that's as it should be. He goes on to compare the Book of the New Sun to Jack Vance's Dying Earth series and that that it explains all the bizarre coincidences in the story. And that's fair. I don't think I'll ever be satisfied with that reading, but it's a potentially self-consistent reading. What can I say? Also, we got a five-star Apple podcast review. Ooh, very cool. Wait, yeah. I didn't act. I actually didn't see this. Oh, this is fun. Okay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm legitimately morning. surprised. That's awesome. Well, this one's by King Mark 21. It's entitled huge fan. He says, uh, one of the best podcasts covering a great subject matter to date. I'm a huge fan of Wolf, and this podcast hits the nail on the head as far as how his work should be analyzed and what can be extracted from it. Highly recommended. Thank you. Oh, that's King very Mark cool. 21. Thank you very much. Well, Craig, this episode is on a chapter that doesn't sound like much, 
but it's twisty. And it was controversial for us. We were at each other's throats for a while. Remember that? Oh, and that's right. I imagine it was interesting, in, you know, in a dumpster fire kind of way. But a lot of it was you and I trying to get past our confusion and exasperation with each other's readings. I mean, a lot of our conversations are like that over email and Slack, you know, meet it out during the week. But, you know, they come in such bits and pieces that it's almost not noticeable. In this case, we batted each other for about a half hour. And then, like a good Western, bloody and muddy, we shook hands <laughs> and put out the more informative Robert's Rules of Order conversation. <laughs> a lot of you are shouting into your earbuds right now. Why didn't you put out that conversation? Well, to tell the truth, I did the editing on this one and we just felt like it was actually less interesting than it probably sounds to you right now. Five minutes, 10 minutes of that with you know a lot more profanity than we actually used. <laughs> that would have been great. But there was much, much more of it than that. And I was also in a bad mood and I had to like <laughs> step back for a minute. Not because of things that had nothing to do with with Wolf or you or anything else. Yeah. And so much of it is along the same lines of the sorts of conversations y'all are used to from me and are already sick of. So trust <laughs> me, we're doing you a favor, but stick around for the bloopers for a taste of it. And now, Craig, like good Jungians. Let us get Let on get with on this episode of Analyzing Severian's Dreams. Very cool. Chapter 33, Five Legs. So the chapter takes place entirely during the night after Agilus's execution, after Severian and Dorcas saw the Temple of the Pelerines' vision, uh, quotations, in the sky, after Talus's play, they're all sleeping under the stars by a fire. Severian lies awake for, quote, perhaps a watch, which means an hour or two. He realizes during this time that Talos has not plan to go to sleep. And Severian wishes he'd go away because he wants to get the claw out and look at it. So first Talos just sits as if he's thinking for a long time. And then he gets up and paces in front of the fire. And Severian describes his face as, quote, immobile, but expressive. Yeah. At one point in his first meeting, Severian described his teeth. So it can't always be completely immobile, but at least his mouth moves when he talks. But I guess he doesn't make expressions, but conveys moods with, you know, head gestures, which is exactly how, uh, we'll call it a robot. It's exactly how Marble in the Book of the Long Sun, yeah. who no longer has a face, conveys emotion. Yeah. And I wonder, too, how literal he means immobile. Uh, and I, I mean that just blankly. I just wonder how immobile he means. Like, is it literally just immobile like a robot face or a completely dead fox face? Mm -hmm. Or is it immobile in the sense of just not having a whole lot of the, like, if you watch people's actual expressions, like a smile isn't just the mouth, right? It's eyes and cheekbones and eyebrows and everything else. You know, I always think too, if he was created artificially, maybe he has, he's immobile in the sense that when he smiles, the corners of his mouth go up and that's it. But the rest looks totally uncanny valley type. But I don't know. I don't know exactly how how to take that. I don't know. Of course, in my imagination, the most natural thing is to have him have expressions. But when I see it described this way, I imagine a face that's immobile, except for you know maybe moving his mouth to talk. And 
only conveying expressions through a cocking of the head or a way of presenting, which is kind of the way Marvel does it in the Book of the Long Sun. Mm-hmm. As he paces back and forth, Severian detects a wide range of emotions. I saw sorrow, glee, desire, ennui, resolution, and a score of other emotions that have no names flicker across that vulpine mask. <laughs> and it's funny, too, that those two words are the two words. Ennui and vulpine are the two that he decides to give us in Castle of Days, and he gives super simplified definitions of them. So ennui is just boredom, and for vulpine, he just says foxy. Yeah, well, fox-like, right? And what's funny is both of those words actually usually connote all kinds of different things. Like ennui is more like a sort of tired of life kind of boredom, not just like, wish I could get something else. <laughs> and vulpine has all kinds of sort of seductive and uncanny and really sly things that go with fox. Well, it just comes back to the, a sense that he's wearing a fox mask, right? A mask of a stuffed fox. Mm-hmm. So yep. once again, that's a face that wouldn't change. It would be like a mask, but also an idea that maybe he does flat out look like a fox. I don't know what it means to have someone look like a fox, but anyway, but all these emotions, does this imply he has some deep inner life or is Talos just going through a routine? during the night, practicing out each emotion in turn? I think that's a good question. I like to think that he actually does have this kind of crazy rich life. And that's what Severian's trying to say here is that even though he seems like such a performer, you know, in all this time that he doesn't have to sleep, you know, his he's thinking through all kinds of stuff and wondering and, and who knows having what sort of internal drama. I mean, it may be completely alien and Severian can't quite get it. And I think the, the, it's it's a fun mix of things here, like the immobile face and the face that doesn't really have all that much expression, and yet the countless emotions that go through that there's something really in the end just kind of alien yeah. about him. Well, yeah, as you know, my preference is that I'm not all that certain that he's sentient at all, but he's just putting it on. But, you know, there's no way to say that emphatically. Yeah, I definitely, I think, go towards the other side where, where Talus does have this craziness. Right. But at the same time, even though I say that, it's supposed to be incredibly strange and foreign and not really relatable at all. So after that, Talos starts whacking the heads off of wildflowers with his sword cane. And <laughs> it's his Caddyshack moment. Yes, exactly. I, I imagine him having some sort of description of, ah, here's the Cinderella kid. Here's water Yeah, Bill Murray should definitely play this role. And that sword cane is surely Vodalus's. And very quickly, he's executed every blossom within 12 paces of the fire. If there's a symbolic thematic resonance to Talos having Vodalus's cane, I don't know what it is, though. And the fact that he's destroying flowers when one of Severian's symbols is a flower, is a rose, should not be lost on us. <laughs> Leave the roses alone! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there is that sense of destroying blooms, of destroying the the beautiful things that, mm-hmm. that come up, and just sort of mindlessly, like not even really aware of it, just to kind of pass the time. And they're also kind of a connection to Severian, because these are little flower excruciations, right? <laughs> yep. And, and when he's you know, executed enough flowers, he's far enough away that he can't see Severian and he can only hear his cane whacking. And now Severian takes the claw out and he says, quote, it was as if I held a star, a thing that burned in the light. 
Dorcas is asleep, so unfortunately he can't look at it with her. As he watches it, quote, the icy blue radiance increases, and he's afraid Talos is going to notice it. And we should say, too, that the fact that one of the first descriptions of the thing is that it was as if I held a star. Well, yeah. Literally, we find out that he is in some ways holding the power of a star in his hand. Right. Yeah. yeah. In one way or the other, directly or indirectly. Yeah. And even though Wolf doesn't explicitly spell that out until Earth, this is one point where little things like this make me feel like that's something of the backstory that he had worked out in these books already. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that star of Severian's was understood. Yeah. Not as if this is a clue, but it's the kind of thing that I feel like Wolf would be having be having a joke for himself or just knowing kind of what was mm-hmm. what was going on here. And at the very least, the power of the new sun is a star, the new sun of the star. Even if he hadn't worked out quite the details of everything, the symbolism still works. Yeah. Now help me understand what's being said here. Quote, I held the gem to my eye with some childish idea of viewing the fire through it as through a lens, then snatched it away. The familiar world of grass and sleepers had become no more than a dance of sparks slashed by a scimitar blade. I think of that as if saying looking through the gym was a, I don't know, psychedelic kaleidoscope. And it made things that he saw so different that it kind of abstracted everything into light and movement and sparks. And in other words, that it was so different from what he expected to see and like so refracted and just chaotically different, like a psychedelic kaleidoscope, (laughs) that it seemed seemed so different. Yeah, but it it seems that he's seeing this after he snatches it away from his eye. Hmm. Let's see. He'd become no more than a dance for a slash bias. Hmm. The familiar word. Uh, yeah, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, it, the grammar of that, I guess, is weird. Like, what is he, what is that part after the dash referring to? Like, is that what he sees after he pulls it away? Or is that that he snatched it away because that's what he saw? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think, yeah, it's, it's a little ambiguous because you could read that either way. To me, it makes sense if it's what he saw through there and it kind of frightened him or surprised him for being too weird. I kind of agree, yeah, but what would you expect? <laughs> well, yeah, and if it's after, then maybe what I'd be thinking is I'd try to look at that second part as saying that when I did snatch it away, the normal world, light didn't look like light, but just kind of dull little sparks, like things weren't as full as they usually did or, or, you know, things look dead now compared to looking through the claw at them. That's, that one's harder to pull off. I feel like so. Well, it is true that that slashed by a scimitar blade does feel like he must be seeing whatever he's seeing through the gem, Mm -hmm. unless he's still seeing, you know, you know, kind of like you have a, you have a bright light and then you pull it away and then you still see the light. Yeah. Well, now Severian starts immediately thinking about Master Malrubius, which if you're one of these people who sees Wolf put two different things together and believes Wolf is connecting them for some reason, then probably like me, your attention is now at 100%. <laughs> this reverie is really strange for me, but let's look at this and kind of hash it out here. You used to have a quite different tenuous theory about Severian's memory, that he didn't have a perfect memory. He only thought he did. I had a lot of problems with this. The first is that the perfect memory was so key to so many aspects of the plot. The other is that I 
couldn't say why it was important that Severian thought he had a perfect memory. So what is important here for me is, quote, I am not sure how old I was when Master Marubius died. It was a number of years before I became captain, so it must have been quite a small boy. Severian, who thinks he can remember anything, who has remarkable immersive memory experiences, he can't really work out when Malrubius died. So there's a couple of things. It could be, you know, it could just be this is a place where he actually was wrong. He goes on to explain that what he means is that, you know, he was sick for a long time. And so Palamon took over and says that. So it was always weird because he knew that Malrubius was still lying in his bed somewhere else. But it's also funny, too, because he, he talks about the thing about how something being unseen is as good as being unbeen, unbeen. But in this case, it was otherwise that even though we didn't see him, we felt his presence, you know, all so strong. And that we still felt like Malrubius was in charge, even though Palamon was there. But of course, Malrubius was dying and so wasn't really there. Well, I think that that aspect has to do with something he's going to talk about authority. Uh, later on, mm-hmm. who's in charge? What does it mean? Who are you going to be? Uh, who is your allegiance to? Your connection to? What is your connection to the honor? That kind of thing. But mm-hmm. we we have two possibilities here. One is that Severian has a perfect memory, and the other is that he thinks he has a perfect. And that's both of those things are consistent within themselves. If Severian thinks he has a perfect memory, and is failing to remember, and is making some portions of this story up then even those portions of the stories where when he's talking about the story that Thecla told him, where he's actually, it's almost like he's watching it on TV. That doesn't mean that the memories are real. So those are two different possibilities about his memory. The question is, if he thinks he has a perfect memory and doesn't, what is the purpose, the literary meaning of Severian believing falsely that he has a perfect memory. If he has a perfect memory, then that also has a literary purpose because it is not typical for a first-person narrator to assure us Mm -hmm. that he has a perfect memory. We just assume everything he says about what happened is the way it happened. But when he he asserts that he has a perfect memory and asserts that he doesn't really remember something that he remembers all the details of, but he can't say when it happened. He can replay memories in his mind like he did with uh, Thecla's story. Why is it he cannot remember when this happened? So I should let you go ahead and and explain your part here. (laughs) Okay. All right. Curiositas Urthus. This is the first Severian story. And it's put together piece by piece, just following the threads. The first Severian just as Severian describes at the end of Citadel the Autark. He grew up in the tower. He was exiled. He didn't carry the claw because, I say, there was no claw. He met the Autark by chance. He became the Autark. He went to Yeset. We can debate whether he actually achieved the sun. He didn't achieve the sun. The point is that after that was brought back to Earth, 
and became a walker in the corridors of time, whatever that means. What I say happened is that the first Severian was on that beach, encountered that rose thorn, plucked it, bled on it, and that became the Claw of the Conciliar. He went to Yesod. He returns in Typhon's time and becomes the conciliar, but not in his own universe. And this is why, that's why Severian says in Sword of the Lictor that he believed the claw was a thing from another universe, because it was. And because the first Severian is performing all of the miracles, this is why the claw glows blue when the first Severian is active and nearby. Just like that blue light in Father Aniri's uh, presence chamber because he has that connection of his blood to the thorn that's inside that claw. And Severian, he's going to lose the claw. It's going to get broken. He's eventually going to hide the claw uh, with the pelerines. And then he's going to go off. He's going to find another, he's going to find a thorn. And he's gonna, it's going to be that very same thorn in a subsequent universe, cut his finger. He's going to go to Yesid. He's going to go back in time to Typhon's time. But he doesn't encounter the first Severian there because he's in a the subs, he's in a subsequent universe, and he passes off that claw. That claw is going to become the claw of the conciliator in that universe, and that is the story that I see happening. And one of the things that happens with the first Severian after he returns and becomes a walker in the corridors of time is he goes and he tells the autarch about Severian. He goes and he performs these miracles in order to improve his own life, his own childhood, his, the life of his father by reuniting him with his mother. And one of the things he finally does is he becomes Master Marubius. And he eventually dies there. We know that Severian, our Severian, seems to be going to die in Ushus. He's going to be buried in Ushus, not in the necropolis. That mausoleum that our Severian played in, the first Severian played there too, but there was no body there. But he was eventually buried in that mausoleum. And Severian happens to encounter it because it's the same mausoleum where the first Severian played. They chose it for the same reason, not because of the body that was there. But in this case, now it's his mausoleum, it's his own grave for an entirely different reason. And that's why I say Severian can't remember when Master Malrubius died. It's a situation very similar to when he's not sure that he actually met Vodalus the day before, because for the first Severian, he didn't meet Vodalus that day. Good. <laughs> so we, yeah, we just had a long, a long conversation that we'll probably take out of here where I was like, I don't know if I can get all of that from here. So I will, I'll give then my sort of more local reason for what I think is going on here. And I think it actually makes sense why Severian is talking about that, especially in a chapter where he brings up, what's your connection to authority? Because this little passage makes it clear that even though he was very young, when he knew Malrubius, Malrubius was in his mind, the, the primary father figure, that he was the one who was always seen as really in charge, even above Palamon. And he talks about how even after Malrubius apparently gets sick, as he says in this passage, and Palamon has to take over, that everybody keeps 
really thinking that Malrubius is really in charge. And whenever Palamon makes a different rule or something, they're all like, would Malrubius agree with that? Can Palamon really get away with that? And what he's talking about too, and this whole idea of having this father figure who's absent, but still works on him is really like saying, I had a guy named Malrubius in my life who was to me sort of the ultimate figure of authority. I mean, he's basically kind of in some ways getting into psychoanalytic territory by here, by talking about when he has the line that talks about, there's a saying that the unseen is as good as unbeen. But in this case, it was otherwise. Unseen, Master Malrubius was more palpably present than ever before. I mean, that's very much like saying, you know, we had internalized this father figure (laughs) as if he was always working on us. He then has a passage where he says, I, I, I bring this up for a particular reason. If I was just telling the history of what's going on, I wouldn't mention him. But it's important that you understand that about Malrubius first. And the other reason then when I think it's important for him to say I wasn't really sure when Malrubius died is to me that sounds a little metaphorical as if he's saying I wasn't sure when Malrubius died because honestly, I still feel like he's alive and looking over my shoulder right now. So that to me is the passage is more of an explanation of you got to understand how important Malrubius was in my life. And I've never really explained that before. It's particularly important because he comes back and I don't know if he's a ghost or something else here in a second. So, I mean, I guess that's my, my reading of what's going on in this part is a little bit more of a local reading. Yeah. I can understand that reading. If Severian said, I'm not sure if, Malrubius ever died, but he is sure. I mean, later in this, uh, I'm not sure which volume it is off the top of my head. He talks about seeing them carry his body out of the tower. He does remember when he died. Now, he may also remember all the times he came back, but he remembers this event when he died. But he says, I'm not sure how old I was when he died. That just really feels strange. And I have to make a choice about whether Severian really has a perfect memory or just thinks he has a perfect memory. I've kind of found a way to believe that he has a perfect memory. And once I've accepted that, this isn't just some strange variation in description or history that could just be a matter of authorial flourish on Wolf's part. Oh, okay. So one you found some detail that Wolf missed. No, he's this is a issue of memory. He brings it up for memory. It's it's got big neon signs around it as far as Severian's concerned. So I am still bothered by Severian not knowing when Master Marubius died. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It doesn't seem logical. I think I have an answer. I admit it feels big. It's, it's a, it has a lot of threads. I also find that it answers almost every question I had going into it. Anyway, Severian continues. I remember very well, however, how it was when Master Palamon succeeded him as Master of the Apprentices. So this was even before Gerlo had become a master. And for some weeks, or it might have been months, Severian's not sure. After Palamon became master, Malrubius is secluded in his cabin, dying, or at least ostensibly dying. I say he was dying. This is, in some way, disruptive. Palamon is master, but he's not really master because Malrubius is still alive. He's, you know, 
Schrodinger's torturer. <laughs> Let me give you the quote here. There is a saying that unseen is as good as unbin, but in this case, it was otherwise. Unseen, Master Marubius was more palpably present than ever before. Master Palamon refused to assert that Master Marubius would never return, and so every act was weighed in double scales. Would Master Palamon permit it? And what would Master Marubius say? Beep. Okay, I'm going to say, having read this quote again now, I see something I didn't see before, that all this talk about Master Marubius being there but unseen is exactly the way I see the first Severian. Beep. Okay. (laughs) Severian explains at this point that torturers don't go to the Tower of Healing. This is the first we're told of this place. But no matter how sick they get, they don't go there. Severian says, There is a belief, whether true or not, I cannot say, that old scores are settled there. (laughs) Trust me, a lot of people have a similar, though not the same, suspicion about doctors even today. So, you know, (laughs) who knows? This next part is long and dense. And other than maybe associating the claw with Malrubius, I'm not sure its purpose beyond the beauty of the passages. In a minute, Severian is going to encounter Malrubius, and that would be sufficient, I think. He says, if I were writing this history to entertain or even to instruct, I would not digress here to discuss Master Malrubius, who must, at the moment when I thrust away the claw, have been dust for long years. I don't want to make too big a deal of it, but it is unlikely Marubius's bones would be dust already. It's been, what, maybe 15 years or so at the most since he died. But this does demonstrate how his death exists out of time for Severian. Anyway, at this point, Severian goes into a long aside in which Severian compares the duties of an executioner and the duties of a writer or historian to be similar. But in a history, as in other things, there are necessities and necessities. I know little of literary style, but I've learned as I have progressed and find this art not so much not so much different from my old one as might be thought. Many scores and sometimes many hundreds of persons come to watch an execution, and I've seen balconies torn from their walls by the weight of the watchers, killing more in their single crash than I in my career. These scores and hundreds may be likened to the readers of a written account. But there are others besides these spectators who must be satisfied. The authority, in whose name the Carnifex acts, those who have given him money so that the condemned may have an easy or a hard death, and the Carnifex himself. So to associate this with the act of creation, particularly writers, the artist must appeal to the authority of the audience that is named first. The publishers who pay for his venture, second, and also the artist's own muse. And... He says, the spectators will be content if there are no long delays, if the condemned is permitted to speak briefly and does it well, if the upraised blade gleams in the sun for a moment before it descends and thus gives them time to catch their breath or nudge one another, and if the head falls with a satisfactory gout of blood. And if they don't all get so obsessed when they mass together and fall into a deep pit of their own making. (laughs) Yeah. And similarly, he says, you who will someday delve into Master Alton's library will require of me, quote, 
No long delays. Personages who are permitted to speak only briefly yet do it well. Certain dramatic pauses which shall signal to you that something important is about to occur. Excitement and a sating quantity of blood. <laughs> well, we've certainly got our pause here. <laughs> yeah, here we are. <laughs> the authorities for whom the Carnifex acts, the Chiliarchs or Archons, if I may be permitted to prolong my figure of speech, will have little complaint if the condemned is prevented from escaping, or much inflaming the mob, and if he is undeniably dead at the conclusion of the proceedings. That authority, as it seems to me, in my writing, is the impulse that drives me to my task. Its requirements are that the subject of this work must remain central to it, not escaping into prefaces or indexes or into another work entirely, that the rhetoric not be permitted to overwhelm it, and that it be carried to a satisfactory conclusion. Those who have paid the carnifex to make the act a painless or a painful one may be likened to the literary traditions and accepted models to which I am compelled to bow. That is, in Wolf's case, the tropes of genre, right, that he manipulates. Mm -hmm. I recall that one winter day, when cold rain beat against the window of the room where he gave us our lessons, Master Malrubius, perhaps because he saw we were too dispirited for serious work, perhaps only because he was dispirited himself, told us of a certain Master Warenfred of our own guild, who in olden times, being in grave need, accepted remuneration from the enemies of the condemned and from his friends as well, <laughs> and who by stationing one party on the right of the block and the other to the left, by his great skill made it appear to each that the result was entirely satisfactory. In just this way, the contending parties of tradition pull at the writers of histories, yes, even at Artarchs, where one desires ease, the other richness of experience in the execution of the writing, and I must try in the dilemma of Master Warenfred, but lacking his abilities to satisfy each. This I have attempted to do. I must say, one thing about this book that is regularly remarked on is that Wolf put everything inside it. There remains the Carnifex himself. I am he. It's not enough for him to earn praise from all. It's not enough even for him to perform his function in a way he knows to be entirely creditable and in keeping with the teaching of his masters in the ancient traditions. In addition to all this, if he's to feel full satisfaction at the moment when time lifts his own severed head by the hair, he must add to the execution some feature, however small, that's entirely his own and that he will never repeat. Only thus can he feel himself a free artist. And I have to say that one of the things that comes up a lot, or I try for it to, is that from the beginning, Wolf did, and the remarkable thing is that he was allowed to, but Wolf did put a lot of things into his stories that are clearly there only for himself. The backstory of Agia, Agilis, and Hathor, hinted at, but unclarified. You know, why are they there except for Wolf himself? So this is Wolf's little... What, what is the word? There must be a literary word for this where you offer an analogy of what you're doing at that moment. Wolf as the executioner. Yeah. It's an extended motif or conceit or something like that. It also at this point is interesting because he's setting us up for something that's going to seem really, really surreal, right? He's talking about all these traditions and things that you have to do and how it is to carry something out. And he ends by having this thing and he says, you know, and you also have to give me a little leeway to be creative and have something here of my own. And 
what happens right after that is an incredibly surreal moment where someone who is dead shows up and he's like, I don't think it was a ghost. It didn't seem, I don't know. <laughs> I just don't really know how to put it. Was it a dream? But it felt real. Yeah. Yeah. And what's fun about that is that he leaves it completely unstated what form this passage is that's right here. Is this something that is for the audience? Is this something that's for himself? Is this something that is for literary tradition? You know, who is he trying to please by putting this in here? Especially when it just seems so radically weird. And I actually think the implication is, no, this is actually something important for all those levels. Even if you don't quite recognize it now, the crazy thing I've done, it's sort of like saying, you know, I know I have to be completely aware of everything I'm doing and all the people I'm trying to please by doing this and then do something that seems to do absolutely none of that. But it's almost as if I'm apologizing, saying, no, trust me, I know what my responsibilities are. Now here, I'm going to do something that seems like it's not at all responsible, but it really is. Wow. Well, that's the first time I've seen someone offer a plot-driven thematic reason for why that's there in this chapter, as opposed to just <laughs> Wolf, just, uh, you know, I think I'm going to do this. Because <laughs> yeah. everything else that's happened is strange, but at least to me, never feels so far out of left field that it seems like it completely breaks any rules of the world. Instead, it's always like it's setting up the rules of the world. But in this passage that comes up here in a second, it's one of those things that Wolf does that happens and then it seems like it should shake everything up, but Severian doesn't talk about it for a long time, right? Doesn't mention it. And that's going to happen a few more times, but it's it's definitely surreal and it totally stands out. In some ways, it's weirder than seeing the Undine at the very beginning because there you just don't know the world. And so anything's surprising. And as the world goes on, we find out, oh no, there are these creatures that are there. And so he probably met one. It's weirder than Talos and Baldanders because eventually we find out that, okay, in this world, apparently there are giant men who can you know, make robots and whatnot. Okay, that's that's weird, but it's still part of the world. But this is something that happens that, isn't explained in this world till the end of Citadel. And so it stays there as this totally confusing, weird thing. And so it kind of makes sense that Severian gives this little apology here at the beginning. Well, okay then. Uh, now Severian puts the claw away and he lays down properly to sleep on an old blanket. And Dorcas is laying alongside him or opposite him. Anyway, her head is near his. Jalinta is at his feet. They are sleeping feet to feet. Baldanders is on the opposite side of the fire. Perhaps there's symbolism in that. I don't know. His thick-soled boots are in the embers, but he doesn't seem to notice her mind. <laughs> Talos is in a chair, I guess the one that served as a prop throne in the play, I, I think. It's also on the opposite side of the fire and turned away from the fire, so also away from Severian. So Severian can't tell for sure if he's there or not. Sometimes as he dreams, he's conscious of Talos's presence in the chair, and sometimes he's not. And we also don't know for sure that he's awake or asleep yet, right? Like we don't know yet that he, at this particular point, we don't know if he sleeps or not. Yeah, maybe he does sleep. Who knows? We don't. We never really know that for sure. So Severian is starting to dream. It must have been very late when the play ended and they put everything away and laid down to sleep because Severian says the sky is already growing lighter than it is at full dark. Severian reminds us of the dream he had 
when he shared a bed with Bald Anders uh, just three days and 18 chapters ago. And it was a strange dream. Remember the pterodactyl creature that he rode told him, uh, he calls a creature a, a her, you dream, but were you to wake from your waking, I would be there. Severian says, defensively, I think, that there's nothing improper in relating his dreams in a history because, quote, the relation of dreams being entirely in the literary tradition. But this night he says he had what may have been less or greater than a dream, and that is outside the tradition. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Severian assures us that this dream has nothing to do with anything else that happens the next day, which in a wolf story might well mean that it has a great deal with what happens in the plot the next day, but not in any way you'd expect. Severian is only relating this because, quote, it puzzled me at the time. And, you know, heck, it just makes him happy to tell it. But he says, yet it may be that insofar as it entered my mind and has remained there from time to time to this, it affected my actions during the latter part of my narrative. Severian hears footsteps as he sleeps, and also a pattering, and then the sound of a snuffling animal. (laughs) This sound is, of course, just like the sounds he heard outside his room after his elevation. Now, this is sort of a dream and sort of not, he says. So his eyes are open, but he doesn't turn his head, and now he can see that the animal is Triskly. Triskly lays down with his spine pressed against my body. And this, of course, recalls when Severian had been struck by the Avern and can feel someone's spine against his. (laughs) This is the obvious meaning of this chapter. Either that it refers to Malrubius's two legs and Triskeles' three when they approach Severian, or it refers to Triskeles' three legs and Severian's two when they're nestled up together, right? Yeah. And I like that ambiguity quite a bit. Yeah. Before I had assumed, oh, it's Malrubius and Triskly, but I like the the five legs when they're together like that too. Yeah. yeah. Of course, you know, if Malrubius is Severian, then, <laughs> you know. Severian says, it did not seem odd that he had found me, though I recall feeling a certain pleasure at seeing him again. All right. So there's a scene sort of like this in the VRT novella of the fifth head of Cerberus, where someone is sleeping and, and, and some people come and look over him. It's supposed to be a dream, but it's suggested in the narration that the dreamer is really only half asleep. So then Severian hears the footsteps again, and he immediately recognizes them as those of Mal Rubius. He remembers the sounds of his footsteps in the tower when they made all the rounds of the cells. Severian can't recall exactly when he died, but he remembers this. Remember, Severian doesn't move his head to look at him, but eventually Malrubius moves into the circle of Severian's vision. His cloak is dusty. It was always dusty unless it was a very formal occasion. And then he would, uh, I don't know, send it to the cleaners. He had some particular way of drawing his cloak about him. And he did this as he sat down on a box near Severian's bed. All right. So he says, uh, Severian, name me the seven principles of governance. And Severian says, 
it was an effort for me to speak, but I managed to speak in my dream if it was a dream. Then he stops talking. He just sits there silently. Which, by the way, is not what he also says Palamon said of him. The Palamon was always like, you were always so good because you had this memory that could, you remembered all my lessons. You were always one of my best. Right, yeah. That doesn't mean he's not careless. Severian says, a foreboding grew on me. I sensed that if I did not reply, some tragedy would occur. So he makes a go at it. He says, um, anarchy? That's not governance, but the lack of it. I taught you that it precedes all governance. Now list the seven sorts. Okay, so here they are. One, attachment to the person of the monarch. Uh, this is governance by personality, right? Two, attachment to the bloodline or other sequence of succession. Uh, this, I'd say, is monarchy, a hereditary form of dictatorship. Three, attachment to the royal state. Uh, this is maybe, what, nationalism? Yeah, or aristocratic succession or something, which could be a kind of like proto-nationalism, the great family. Yeah. Attachment to a code legitimizing the governing state. This is what, constitutionalism? Attachment to the law only. Traditionalism? No, probably legalism. I would think legalism or kind of like maybe a, a true form of constitutional mm. representation where, you know, the law itself is there and the, it's more about the judges passing or, or applying laws than really arguing over what they are. I'm guessing, though, at this point, it gets a little abstract. Yeah. <laughs> We're at six now. Attachment to a greater or lesser board of electors as framers of the law. So um, democracy or republic? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. The final one is attachment to an abstraction conceived as including the body of electors, other bodies giving rise to them, and numerous other elements largely ideal. I'm not sure I can name this one. Perhaps a form of moral authority or moral code that founds the legitimacy of the authority, uh, natural law? Seems more like that. Yeah. It seems like we're like, and we can talk about these in a second, but it, it, in thinking about these, it does seem like it's going in one way of talking about it from more the most primitive to the more developed and advanced that you go from the person of the monarch who is just the strong person who's in charge. And then you get to not even love of the constitution, but love of the ideals, which any constitution would put into action. And so therefore, you know, you hold the constitution to a higher standard. And on, on that version, some people might think, okay, well, obviously the latter is better that we're, we're developing through these. But there's then another way that you could look at it where the more abstract these things get, the harder it is to actually be attached to them. And is that final thing something you can really be loyal to, or is it so abstract that maybe it's empty? Right. I mean, it's, in other words, there are two ways to look at that different progression. And I think when I was reading through the earth list, it seems like a lot of people quickly decide, oh yeah, it's either a story of a progression of more refined moral philosophy, or it's not. But I feel like you can look at it either way. And maybe, I don't know, I've got more about that in a second. But as far as just what they are, I also think it's important that he doesn't just do it as monarchy, oligarchy, representative democracy, right? It says them in this way that really kind of distances us from knowing exactly what those ideas are. Well, it's natural to think of these things as a progression because he orders them. Mm -hmm. But 
whether they are, well, that's up for grabs. I do think that this sort of moves to a withering away of the state where the state becomes larger, larger, larger. Now it becomes so ideal that it doesn't even exist anymore. And it's also the fact that he's saying authority or in governance and then like attachment to, to that kind of thing. There's also another way to look at it, which is in terms of politics, it's definitely a development. In terms of religion, it's actually a kind of descent, right? Where you're getting away from God himself and further and more to all the institutions of the religion that go out there. So in a, in a political sense, it might be a development. In a religious sense, you might say that people are actually, this is actually worse, that things are getting worse over time. Well, it might be falling away from religion, but that's necessarily God. If you assume that God is the embodiment of all those ideals that give authority. Right. And that could be it. I just, just thinking of when you have an attachment to the person of the monarch, that if you have a, a monotheistic religion, it seems like the highest thing you can have is attachment to the person of the Godhead. If you're like, you know, oh, I, I really love the church more than I love God, or I really love God's officials more than I love God. That seems like a problem, right? That seems Oh, I see it. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. And I think it goes the other way. Think of the wizard knight where you have these successive spheres. It's a very Gnostic idea of a succession of spheres. And the lowest is the person of the monarch, where you have a human being that represents all those ideals in one one in human flesh. And then you begin to go higher and higher so that it becomes more diffuse and not focused on a single person. And then it ceases to be connected to any person, but only on the laws that govern those people. And then not even on the system of laws, but on the law itself. And then finally, on the authority, the moral authority, the natural authority that founds those laws. So you're steadily moving up higher and higher to a greater plane. Oh yeah, I I can see that too. My main point here is that the way that these are described is so weird that you can find all these different readings in it. And and I think it leaves it open so that eventually when Severian does say my attachment is to the person of the monarch, to me, there's no absolutely clear way of looking at that as either a good or bad thing and offering the thing about Triskley and saying like, and he loves you as the first person of the monarch. And that's something that we've talked about as ideal before, right? Like he's even brought up the thing about a dog's loyalty is is the perfect kind of loyalty. Um, But it's also not. But does he really believe that? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think he brings it up. Let's read that. Maybe maybe you're right, but I'm not sure. It's very finally settles on his attachment. I don't really know for sure where that he's going with that. When he describes these, which are pretty detailed for someone who a minute ago says, I I don't think you ever talked. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but Rubius, he, you know, he doesn't hand out gold stars. He says, hmm, tolerable. And then he goes on to the next question. Of these, which is the earliest form and which is the highest? Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the earliest form couldn't be the highest, right? Right. right. They, they could be two separate questions, but it's the way it's posed makes the reader assume, well, okay, that they are, uh, those are opposites of some. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. One thing about this list is that if he had said monarchy, republic, nationalism, blah, 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 then each reader would have 
taken definitions, their own private definitions to those terms. Rather than use the term, he's using some type of definition. So at least we're arguing over the same thing. Severian says that the governments develop in society in the order that they are listed. So he's saying that number one would be the earliest. But he doesn't recall Malrubius ever asking for the highest sort. But Malrubius won't be deterred. He leans forward, his eyes burning brighter than the coals of the fire. Which is highest, Severian? The last master? Malrubius repeats it. You mean attachment to an abstraction conceived as including the body of electors, other bodies giving rise to them, and numerous other elements largely ideal? Yes, master. So what kind, Severian, is your own attachment to the divine entity? Okay, notice he says, doesn't say what's your attachment to the autarch. He doesn't say what's your attachment to, you know, the guild, but to the divine entity. So my initial interpretation of this question is, what is your own attachment to that abstraction, that ideal mm-hmm. that he's described in the type in the seventh type of government. But I think instead, based on the conversation that follows, that he's asking Severian what form of authority does he personally recognize? And as we go on, I want you to tell me if you agree. Severian doesn't answer anything though. He's not thinking anything. He says, instead, I became profoundly aware of my physical surroundings. The sky above him, quote, seemed to have been made solely for my benefit and to be presented for my inspection now. I lay upon the ground as upon a woman, and the very air that surrounded me seemed a thing as admirable, as crystal, and as fluid as wine. And this is very close to what happens in Citadel when he has his religious experience. Mm -hmm. Says, even the ground was sacred, and so I took my boots off so that I would not walk shod on sacred ground. Right? That he's having a kind of, and when he's praying, he kind of falls into his own. Yeah, that everything around me, even the simple things, are wondrous and holy. Answer me, Severian. Remember, he's asking what's Severian's own connection to the divine entity. The first, if I have any. So, to the person of the monarch? Yes, because there's no succession. So, Severian says that the form of government, I guess, maybe, that he recognizes is the least refined in the list, or that his own attachment to God is the least refined in the list. Then Marubius notes that Triskeli would die for him. The animal that rests beside you now would die for you. Of what kind is his attachment to you? The first? And then Severian wakes up. Marubius and Triskeli are gone, but his side is faintly warm, which again refers vaguely to his feeling on sanguinary fields. So, Craig, for me, there's two big questions here. Did I interpret Marubius's question correctly about the divine entity? Of what kind, Severian, is your own attachment to the divine entity. In other words, is he saying, what is your own attachment to that abstraction or ideal? 
in the seventh form of government. Yeah, I think he's more saying, okay, we're talking about all that in terms of government, thinking of autarchs and rulers and all that kind of thing. But then I feel like he switches it and he's like, okay, well, that's all well and good. What kind of attachment do you have to a true authority, a true God or, or whatever the increate happens to be? And that's kind of why Severian's thrown for a second there, because he's like, I thought we were talking about governance, but I guess we are talking about governance, but it's something else. And he's trying to decide, you know, well, what do I actually, in, and then he even says there, you know, I guess it's the first in, in as much as I have any, as if, you know, I've never really thought about real religion before. And I think he says that meaning, the way I take it, Severian says the first, not because he's trying to say, I have actual faith in God or something. I think what he thinks he's saying is, I have only the most basic and the, the least refined of these things because I haven't really thought about it and, and I don't really know a good answer. And that, that's honest insofar as he's, you know, and I feel like he's saying that coming out of that like momentarily religious experience where he's having this sense of sort of awe and wonder for the first time. And really trying to be very honest and say, I guess if I have any kind of connection, it's to just kind of awe in the face of that. But I, I haven't developed any kinds of ideas at all. Then when Malrubius says, and that's the same, and, and Triscoli would die for you, what kind do you think he has for you? And then it's kind of like Severian realizing, oh, Triscoli truly, really does love me. And apparently, according to Malrubius, he would die for me. That's if that's the same as the first one, then maybe it's not quite so basic and simple and unrefined and, and, you know, lowly after all, maybe that's actually a really high thing. But I feel like the main thing that it shows right here, to me at least, is that Severian is for the first time opened up to the possibility of what kind of attachment to something true and meaningful do I have? And he realizes he does have some kind of attachment to it or draw or is drawn towards something or he actually does kind of feel some sense of awe or wonder or something and maybe that's kind of like his growing you know moral sense that we've talked about that's starting to get to get out here really quickly and it's sort of like Malrubius saying wake up and be more deliberate about these things and when he gives that little quip about Triscally, it's not him really saying you know the main thing is is he's saying okay is that good or bad Kind of like you have to decide. So the real push here is not for us to figure out which of the seven things is the highest one and is Severian in the right place at the right time. Instead, to me, the real push of this whole thing is that Malrubius has created a puzzle and a question that Severian didn't realize he was invested in and now realizes he is invested in. Does that make sense? Like it's kind of like him getting put into this situation where it's sort of clicking him into realizing he needs to pay more attention to the kinds of attachments and decisions and, and commitments that he's making and that he has to develop some kind of feeling towards not, not just governance of the world, but it's sort of like him saying, Oh yeah, there is something deep and meaningful in this world. And I've got to figure out what I think it is and what my relationship to it is. And maybe I haven't been very deliberate about that up to this point. Well, I think, I think you're on to something because I think it must be that if Malrubius had in his mind an idea of attachment that's highest, he must be strongly implying that the first is the highest, even though it's the less refined. And here's the thing. Triscoli doesn't really know Severian. He doesn't know much about Severian at all. And mm -hmm. yet his devotion is absolute. And that is Severian's yep. relationship 
to God, to the divine entity as well. And it's what he develops in, in Citadel, right? It's a moment of a kind of conversion where he decides to turn himself over and give himself up to something. And he doesn't know quite what it is yet, but it's that whole passage in Citadel when that happens is him really trying to become servile, <laughs> you know, and like, and he doesn't know what it means, but he's like, I really do need to, there are all these things in this world that are greater than me and almost everything is greater than me. And I want to take up my proper place in this world. To me, yeah, I mean, I know I've seen a lot of argument on the earth list and read it and everywhere about like which one of these is right. And if there's some, you know, Wolf putting forward a, a kind of tricky political and religious or theological political theory or something here, I don't, I don't really think there is. I think this is more kind of like a good teacher's trick of getting you to think about what your fundamental commitments are. <laughs> and that's that's kind of what Malrubius is trying to get Severian to pay attention to here. That's why the thing there, I mean, it's in some ways it's very Socratic, right? Like Malrubius doesn't tell him one thing. He's just asking him questions over and over again. And the, the final thing with Triskley is very much, okay, you said that thing because you thought it was low, but maybe it's very high. And it doesn't mean that it necessarily is, but now Severian's got to think about it. And decide. Well, I'll tell you one thing about this ending is that it's very Wolfian in that it ends in a way that's supposed to explain everything to us and then doesn't explain anything to us. Yeah, it's still very enigmatic when all of a sudden done it. Right. One other thing I would go back to, though, is because I do think it's actually really important to go back to that passage about Malrubius, even if it is the first Severian stuff too, I also think it's important that he brings it up here because Severian is saying, you know, I do have this deep ingrained feeling of kind of this Malrubius guy does have a sense of authority for me. And, and he is kind of like a scary father figure <laughs> in my <laughs> dreams here. And this is that kind of happening here. But if you have that kind of scary father figure show up and not just come and punish you and tell you you're doing the wrong thing, you're bad, you're evil, do better, follow the law. That's not what Malrubius here actually does. What Malrubius does instead is just asks a bunch of questions and tells Severian, you know, you need to take responsibility for yourself and you really need to get clear about what your opinions are about the world and about why you're doing the things that you're doing. That's kind of like a moment of maturity too, of Severian not just saying, I no longer just felt like a child who was scared of, of Malrubius or who felt like he was always being judged by Palamon or, or Gerlos or something like that. But instead, it's kind of like saying, you know, my father came to me and didn't necessarily tell me he was proud of me, but he told me that I was in a place where I could start to become an adult and make decisions for myself. And he would help me do that. And there is a strong vein of... I don't know, growing up and being a little bit more aware that you're mm. responsible for your decisions, but not in a punishing way, but in a more adult way when this happens. In other words, Malrubia starts off as seeming like a scary, evil father figure who's going to judge you in ways that you don't know. And it turns out that Severian's, whether this is his dream or actually some other creature, but it's turned into now it's a father figure who's actually helping him become a bit different adult. And so in a sense, it is a chapter I feel like about maturity, about like developing in some way, or at least getting on the path towards development. Otherwise it's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> 
there we pretty much summarize this chapter. Yeah, it's also a crazy, weird, surreal dream that pops up that, that <laughs> on the surface makes no sense whatsoever. So it's one of those conversations you have in a dream that sounds very profound when you're doing it. And then when you start trying to explain it to somebody, like, wait, wait a minute, this doesn't make as much sense as I thought. <laughs> That's right. And, and honestly, I think that point right there is probably one of the best reasons to think that this was a dream rather than just a very misunderstanding, <laughs> some surreal equester action going on. <laughs> but no, I think too, it's, it's the equesters. It's, I mean, you know. oh yeah, yeah, it's real. It's <laughs> but it, it does fit nicely in a dream. So. And we certainly hope y'all have comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints, and that you bring them to us on Facebook group, the Reddit, Twitter, or email. You can find out how to do that all on the show notes. Leave an Apple podcast review and tell your wolf reading friends. Come and explain (laughs) this stupid chapter to me. (laughs) And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. Thanks, everyone. One night your shadow fell upon my lonely room I touched your golden hair and tasted your perfume Your eyes were filled with love the way they used to be Your gentle hand reached out to comfort me That's the end. You ready to do the final thing out? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm good. I'm good to go. I'm not good. Okay. Let me stop real quick. Yeah. We can... Good. Good, good, good. All right. All right. Are we good to go? Just want to jump in? I I guess we are. All right. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. $10 to hear us yeah. really fight out. Because <laughs> that claw, I say, is Malrubius's thorn. It has Malrubius's blood on it. So Malrubius's blood? Malrubius is the first Severian. Have we talked about that before? Yeah, I think so. We have? Okay. I didn't convey that very well. Uh, maybe, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out. So, but wait, I thought you also just said that there was no Malrubius for the first Severian. No, he didn't have a master Malrubius because he went to Severian's time and became Malrubius. But we know that the blood on the claw is actually Severian's blood. Yes, the first Severian. If it was, as I believed, a thing from another universe. Yeah, but we're actually shown him getting pricked and bleeding into the thorn. It's because that happens to Severian just as it happened to the first Severian. So you, by that logic, there would be two different claws and two different thorns. Just as so many other things happen and repeat themselves. Because there would also have to be one that Malrubius bled into. So here, okay, let me, let me, let me put it this way. Okay, here's, here's my, let me lay it out in this way. Okay, so first variant. I gotta admit that's not working for me because he's the he's the conciliator. Everything he's doing is being the conciliator. No, 
absolutely. Well, no. Well, mm, yes. Well, yes, but they would have been far away. Okay. Well, let me. Okay. No, he is going. But that's where where Earth is talking about. You know, the conciliator, the legends that sprang up around Severian going back and doing all the things he went back in time. He is the conciliator. So here's where maybe I start to feel like. Uh, now I guess I have a problem with that because now I feel like we're getting into that that world of there's not really anything for me in the text that points to that and yet there's a whole lot of stuff plot wise that it seems like you're building on I think there's an easier solution to that um, Malrubius has come back many times to watch him because he's this aquaster from the Yasadis and all those times when he when he imagines them and thinks of him, those are actual times that Malrubius has come back. And since he has come back, it means that Severian can't remember exactly when he died because he's also got memories of him being alive after he's supposed to have died. Yeah. Hypothetical? Like, like, it's a way to say, if that were the case, here's how it could happen. But I don't see things in the text that would confirm that any of it does. <laughs> That's where, I guess... I think one way we're diverging here is that you're you've got a lot of trust in sort of the details of a first Severian story and that you can put it together in this way. Whereas my big fear with that is the trust in all the details of that first Severian story that you're putting together. I'm fine with it being something that's suggested there. But the problem is all of this story that you're telling me is <laughs> I mean, we're talking about like a five-year-old's memory here, like a four and a five-year-old memory when like, when that's, I guess the thing here that we're, it's not like talking about things that happened a couple of years ago. Like he's talking about things that happened when he was a, a small child. And that, that also kind of gets back into the specifics of his memory of like exactly how it works. Like saying, well, he would have to have had a perfect memory from, you know, the moment he could remember everything. <laughs> hmm. 